The following is a sermon from Pastor Timothy Borman and Sure Foundation, a church located in Woodside, Queens, New York, the world's most diverse community. For more information and for more audio content, go to sure-foundation.org. The sermon this morning is found in one of the deepest laments that we have in all of Scripture. I'm going to read from Lamentations chapter 2. And if you'd like to follow along, it's right there on page 11. We're going to stay on verse 13 for a while in the sermon, and then near the end of the sermon we'll get into verses 18 through 22. I want to read these verses for you now. What can I say for you? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. You walls of daughter Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your heart, hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. And now a new voice that's always indicated with quotation marks. Look, Lord, and consider... Whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring? The children they have cared for, should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men, young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. As you summon to a feast day, so you summon against me terrors on every side. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. Those I cared for and reared, my enemy has destroyed. So we're the Lord. He doesn't actually talk to her for more than two chapters. I should probably explain. There's two voices in these chapters of Lamentations. One voice is the voice of a man. He's a a male narrator. Maybe it was Jeremiah the prophet, probably. And this male narrator is observing. He's seeing almost coldly, almost distantly, all that this second voice is suffering, of course, he's seeing the destruction of Jerusalem after it sinned against the Lord. The second voice is the voice of a woman. You see, in biblical times, cities always were feminine, still true in Spanish today, la ciudad. And so, We could rightly call the second voice the voice of the city woman. 
And unlike the first voice who is almost coldly observing the destruction of the city woman, the city woman only wants one thing for more than two chapters. She just one, wants one thing. And she calls out and she begs for it. She says, all you who are passing by, does anybody at all see me? She says. And nobody does. She's all alone in her pain. Now, all of that changes, actually, when we get to Lamentations chapter 2.13. And that's what we're really leaning hard into today. It's the first verse that we have in our lesson. All of it changes. We have right here first. You see, for the very first time, the male narrator stops talking about her. Because he had already talked about her a lot. For the very first time here, you see what he does? He speaks to her. He actually, in my mind, I, I see it something like this. He, he looks at her as she sits in the ground in the dust, in the destruction, and he sits down. And for the very first time, he, he sees her. I mean, he really sees her. That is until the tears blur his eyes and he can no longer see anything at all. And then he says something to her, for the very first time, he says, what can I say for you? I suppose as we, as we think about this topic that we have in front of us for the next few weeks, gospel and trauma, that we could, we could look at this as sort of cold and distant observers. And I could share with you the, the really the stunning statistics about this. Did you know this? 61% of men will suffer a traumatic event, a catastrophe in their lives. 51% of women will also. Here's another stunning statistic. This one just blows me away. 20% of women, one in five, will suffer, do you know what? I can barely say it. Sexual assault. Of these people, a smaller group will, 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 will be diagnosed later with what's called PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. And the statistics say this, that of every hundred people in the world today, do you know how many are suffering at any one time PTSD? About 4%. So on any given Sunday, if we have about 100 people here, you know how many people are suffering from PTSD? If, we, if the statistics hold true about your foundation, about four. It's a lot of people. And I suppose we could really stand back from be like, these are just numbers, these are just statistics. But I have to tell you, I can't. Not anymore. If there ever was a time, and I'm not really sure there was, if there ever was a time that that I could stand back as the male narrator does in Lamentations and sort of just observe the numbers sort of distantly and coldly. I can no longer do that because many of you know there was a time in my life when I joined the 61%. And, you know, I'm not going to go into all the details about what happened. If you want to, go ahead and Google my name. It's like the, it's one of the top hits. The story. 
But there was a time when I thought it was over for me. And when it was over, I sent my last messages to my children. And then I signed off for the last time, what I thought was, and then I lived. Now, an interesting thing happened after that occurrence in my life. Many of you remember when 2020 showed up here at church? Do you remember this? One of the cameramen came up to me that very day, and he says, I'm glad you're telling your story. He says, I never did, but I want to tell you what happened to me. He said, I was, I was kidnapped in the West Bank, and somebody held a, get, a gun to my head. And that was story number one. The stories kept coming. People told me stories about somebody sneaking through a window in the middle of the night and then holding a, a knife to their throat. People told me stories about, about rape and childhood abuse about what it was like in Iraq during the war. And I could go on and on and on. The stories kept coming and coming and coming. And I thought, you know what? God is saying something to me. If there ever was a time when I could be a cold observer to trauma, catastrophe, and loss, that day is long over. And God has transformed me and many of you, I think, into what we might call a compassionate witness of everything that can be wrong in life. And to really get it, to really see it, and to begin to ask the question, the question that the male narrator has as he wiped the tears out of his eyes, what can I say for you? Look at the questions that he has in verse 13. What can I say for you? To what can I like can you? What, to what, with what can I compare you? Who can heal you? Do, do you sense the negativity that the narrator has? Do you sense it? I mean, there he is. He's sitting in the dust and the ashes with this woman. He's asking these questions. What can I say for you? And I hear, I almost hear the woman whispering back, There's nothing that you can say to make it right. With what can I compare you? I, I can almost hear her whispering back. There's no comparison. Because there is no suffering like my suffering. And then he says, well, who can heal you? And I can almost hear her whispering back, well, no one. Do you sense the negativity, <laughs> the pessimism, almost, almost the hopelessness that this narrator has right here in verse 13? And there's a part of me that feels that way. It feels that way. I think, I think, should I do it? Should I talk about trauma in church? Will I just make people sad? What can I say? Will I just become like Job's friends? You know, Job's friends? Their words were like daggers to Job and all of his loss. They just made it worse. What can I say? Because who can heal you? You know, at the same time, though, as you look 
at verse 13. Isn't it true that hope is also woven in right next to despair? I could point this out. I could point this out to you. That the woman, the city woman is given a name. Did you notice that? She's given a name, and it's a very resilient name. The male narrator could have called her harlot, sinner, prostitute, idolater. And you know what? She would have deserved it. But he doesn't. Instead, he gives to the woman a resilient name. He calls her daughter. I want you to think about that. It's not that the narrator is the father and she's the daughter. Not at all. Instead, the narrator is starting to draw her into a restorative relationship with with her heavenly father. Do you see that? She has a father. And not just any father, but a father who would give his only son for her. You see, she's given a name, and it's a resilient name. She is a child of the Most High, and this father would not leave her in her disaster and catastrophe. Hope is woven right in there next to the despair, and there's more. Question after question, despairing question after despairing question, what can I compare you to, dear woman? But did you notice that the narrator gives an answer to that question? Not right away. But later he gives this comparison. He says, I will compare your suffering to the depths of the sea. And in that moment, the narrator is giving a kind of metaphorical restraint to her pain and suffering. Yes, there is a comparison for you. It's almost like this, as if the narrator is saying, there are no words for you, dear woman, but there are words. And he goes on for three more chapters. It's almost like the narrator is saying, there is no comparison for you, but try this one. Your wound is as deep as the sea. It's almost as as if the narrator were saying, no man can heal you, but I know someone who can. God can. And God will. Hope and despair are woven together in this incredible tapestry that's called Lamentations 2, verse 13. There's a part of me that wanted to give up on this project from the very beginning. I mean, how can you bring a word of gospel to trauma? I'm convinced that my words are not sufficient. They will never be enough. But I'm equally convinced that we have in the word of God a word of life. I am convinced, I am deeply convinced that trauma wounds, yes, as deep as the sea, but I am equally convinced, more convinced of this, that the love of God in Christ is deeper still. 
He who did not deny us His only Son, His love knows no limits to what can we compare. This time there truly is no comparison. I'm convinced that there is no doctor, no psychologist, no counselor that has adequate words or wisdom to heal. But I am equally convinced that we have a Father and a Son who redeems us and that there is a Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter, who comes to us in our deepest needs with healing balm for our souls. And so with this beautiful tapestry that lives in my own heart with with hope and despair woven together, I I begin this sermon series. And I want to begin it with this way, with the first gift of God's grace to someone who has suffered a traumatic experience, someone who has gone through a catastrophe in life. And it's simply this, the gift of lament. What does the male narrator encourage this woman who has suffered catastrophe and loss to do? To lament. And he says it oh so beautifully, oh oh, so poetically, in so many different ways. He says, cry out to God. He says, don't dry your tears, just, just let them fall. He says, cry out all day and all night. He says, he says, Pour out your heart. It's so beautiful. He says, pour out your heart like a river. And the woman does, doesn't she? She does exactly that. And we could say that she did it in three different parts. First of all, she directs her lament to God. Now, this is, this is an important thing to do. This is the difference between despair and hopefulness. It's, it's, it's the difference between complaint and real honest-to-goodness prayer is when you, br- you bring those complaints to God. So she, said she, she addresses her, her lament to God. The second thing she does is she, she accuses God. She brings to God her massive complaint. And then the third thing she does is she petitions. She says, Lord, all I want you to do is see me in my misery. All I want you to do is see me in all my pain. She laments. Now, when we think about this today in American culture, American culture would say, no way, Jose, right? We're all about denial. We're all about sweeping it under the rug. You know, we're all about choosing your attitude. And we're all about, if you're a man out there, manning up. As if the tears are somehow wrong. And if that doesn't work, what do we do? We self-medicate. We try to distract ourselves. We'll do anything. Isn't it true? We'll do anything not to feel the pain and loss. But that's not the biblical model. It's not the biblical way. The biblical way is this, to wade right there, right into the depths of our pain, and to name it, to name the loss, to name the pain, to feel it, and to bring it into the presence of God, even accusing Him if we must. That's lament. And that's as far as we get today as far as we get today.
Now, I want to be clear about this. I'm not suggesting that this is step one to avoid getting PTSD or something like that or to healing yourself. I am not going to offer in this sermon series five steps towards healing yourself from something like this. Not at all. It's exactly the opposite, actually. This is gift number one from God that you can receive and partake of as He heals you. Do you see the difference? I don't believe in some thing where we heal ourselves. But I do believe that God, through His Word, through His Holy Spirit, heals us. Little by little by little. And this is His first gift. That we can come into His presence because He's a God full of grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. And we can let Him have it. Do you think he can take it? Do you think he can hear it? Yes, he can. Because he has shown just how much he loves us. He can take it. I want to I end with this thought. What does God do with tears then? This is a very hopeful thought. He does three things. He sees them. He cares about them, and he promises that one day he will wipe them away. Isn't that true? Amen.